I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2011. Enjoy. I spend the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show talking with Byron Johnson, distinguished professor of the social sciences and director of the Institute for Studies of Religion, as well as uh, the program on pro-social behavior at Baylor University. He has also uh, been a professor at uh, Vanderbilt University and the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, Professor Johnson's uh, abiding interest is not just in religion itself, but in the role that religion plays, and in particular faith-based programs in combating uh, some of society's most vexing ills and challenges, chief among them uh, that of crime. And uh, so he has uh, explored in his extensive research uh, what's sometimes called the faith factor and uh, the way in which faith-based uh, programs um, can perhaps be a very effective component in, uh, in combating crime, in drawing people away from lives of crime, in rehabilitating those who've already fallen into a life of crime. Uh, but it is also a, a field of study which uh, is sort of fraught with uh, intellectual uh, peril in the sense that uh, there are many people in the field of criminology who kind of look askance at religion and, and the notion that uh, religious thought has uh, any relevance or, uh, or any proper place in the, in the proceedings. And uh, so Professor Johnson's book is also about that, about uh, at some points in his career really swimming upstream and uh, meeting with uh, a, a fairly significant and surprising amount of, of resistance, uh, all told in this really interesting new book called More God, Less Crime, Why Faith Matters, and how it could matter more. It's published by Templeton Press, and we have uh, Professor Johnson with us uh, on the phone to uh, talk about his very intriguing book and uh, some of his ideas. Professor Byron Johnson, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you, Greg. It's good to be here with you. I touched on this, uh, and I think it's worth our exploring for just a moment more. You choose to begin Chapter 1 of your book, uh, by actually uh, not really talking about the topic at, at hand so much as offering up a, a personal story about uh, uh, mm-hmm. a rather painful moment in your professional life, right. pointing to what you call at what, what point uh, one of the... Uh, uh, one of the last, last acceptable prejudices, right? Exactly, <laughs> uh, and uh, it's it's kind of a disturbing thing to read about or to hear about. Yeah, Tell our well, listeners. Well, you know, Greg, I really have uh, said very little about that story, and it happened some twenty years ago, and um, um, I just haven't. I have not been bitter about it, and so, um, but I just felt like maybe this was the time to express it because the book is is about. As you've said so well in your opening, it's about the role that religion plays in combating crime and delinquency, and it's the role of faith-based programs and, and some of our toughest social problems. But one of the things that I've seen is that there's still a fair amount of discrimination against faith-based programs. And um, I thought maybe it would be appropriate to start the book by describing my own experience running into prejudice against a faith in the in the world of academe. And um, so that's exactly what I do. And um, so far, a number of people that know me have been shocked 
to read chapter one because I haven't really talked about it. And um, and and I think it's it's also been a nice hook for the book. So once people read chapter one, they're kind of intrigued and they they kind of want to keep reading. But for for your listeners, what happened was early in my career, I was a uh, outspoken Christian, and um, and so anybody that knew me knew that I was a believer. And I just so happened to also do research in the area of crime and religion. And, um, you know, I was kind of an embarrassment to my department chair and to the dean that I served under. And um, after my fourth year of teaching, um, I received a termination letter. Um, So in academics, you you apply for tenure um, after about your fifth year, thereabouts. And so I was preparing to apply for tenure the next year, but... um, I was terminated, and when I asked why, um, I was told we don't need to give you a reason. And um, and th- and it's true because up until that time you're on probation, they don't have to give you any reasons at all. And uh, so when I went to the provost, the number two person at the university, they basically told me that you know Byron, you're a nice guy, but you need to move on, and you just don't fit in here at a state university, um, and you should go teach. Uh, in some small little Christian college, that's where you'll fit in, because you'll never be able to do what you're doing um, and succeed in academics. I was literally told that my publications on religion would not count um, toward tenure, and so this this was all you know very distressing and disturbing to a, um, a young professor with a, uh, three young kids, and so my wife and I didn't know if that was just the end of the whole thing for us. But, um, you know, what happened was I got a job within a very, I mean, just immediately I applied for a job. And and uh, what happened is my career kind of took off after that by doing research on religion, if you can believe it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started, you know, publishing a lot and started getting a lot of grants. And and so um, it wasn't too long after I, I was terminated um, that I, uh, at a small kind of a state school that I wound up at Vanderbilt University directing a major research center. So it has a very happy ending, but it does show that there's there's still resistance and hostility. Um, I, I've seen it over the years in academics. It's still there. I think in some ways it may be a little bit better than it used to be, but there is, there is a hostility because people are afraid of faith. Um, I know we, we have a lot to talk about in terms of the content of your book, but I hope you won't mind one more question sure. about this particular matter, because I think it's uh, really interesting. Um, one of the things, of course, that makes this a little bit tricky, I mean, I think what you are describing seems pretty clearly to be a, a case of, of really discriminatory, bigoted thinking on the part of your department chair, or whoever mm-hmm. it was that... Uh, had had these attitudes about you. It it seems to me, though, and I say this as a person of faith myself who happens to also teach uh, in, in a college setting, that there is also something to be said about kind of the odd mix that, that uh, especially when someone is in the sciences mm-hmm. or something that is based in fact and, and based on, on scientific research and so on, that the matter of one's personal faith is something entirely different. And... Uh, it isn't about facts. It's a, as you as you yourself said. It's it's about faith, mm-hmm. and and one can see how those two could sometimes mix in ways that that might be a little bit unsettling, shall we say? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's two different languages in a sense. It's two different ways of looking at the world, of understanding the world. Um, have you come to kind of any new 
understandings about that and about the way that, for instance, your own personal faith should be in the mix of, for instance, your your scientific work or your work as a teacher? Sure. Well, first of all, I think that it's we, we all come to um, any field of study with our own particular slants of view, our own biases, if you will. Uh, the fact that I'm a Christian uh, does, in fact, affect the way I see the world and I view the world. The interesting thing is that I, I've always acknowledged that. I acknowledge that in my classes. The way I interpret a theory is, is filtered through the lens of my own faith. That, that means I can't present the material in a perfectly neutral position. But here's the other kicker to that. No one can. And, and so I always say, beware of people that approach you with a value-free slate. They can't. Their own values, let's just say they're completely secular. They see the world through a secular lens, and that's the only way they see it. And they interpret the world that way. The problem is, folks like that sometimes are reluctant to admit that they have their own biases. Instead, they want to say that they approach their, their discipline value-free. And I'm just saying, no matter where you're raised or how you're raised, your own background and experiences affect you. It's important to acknowledge it. So, you know, I acknowledge it up front. And the, the interesting thing, um, when I was terminated, there was a huge student protest. And the student protest was led by students that were not religious at all. And um, I thought that was kind of interesting, that non-religious people came to my defense. And they said, you know, there's no question he's a person of faith, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean he treats us any differently because you know, some of the students do or don't have faith. And then the last thing I'll say on this matter is that there's really not a contradiction between faith and science. And I think there's a lot of good research that would show that that science comes from faith. I mean, if you go back and you look historically at all the great scientists and uh, inventors over, over the years, many of them um, were people that pursued science out of a commitment to God. And so I don't see that the two run hand and uh, are run counter. In fact, I think that 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 uh, faith informs the research and vice versa. Right. I meant more in the sense that uh, if if you ask someone, you know, why do you believe in God, you you might have any one of a number of different answers to that. Right. But when you ask somebody, why do you believe the world is round, or why do you believe the sky is blue? Yes. I mean, the just the nature of that answer. Mm-hmm. To that question is different. The, the, that that that's that's what I mean by kind sure. of the rub between the two worlds. Well, I think there is that rub, but I think the 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 thing that one needs to remember is to, you know to keep the two separate if you're thinking of it in that way. Sure. One other question, uh, kind of overarching about your fascinating book. Um, you have just mentioned already that that you happen to be uh, of the Christian faith, and it, this is a book about faith-based initiatives. And pretty much, as far as I can tell, the faith-based programs that that you are examining happen also to be Christian. Yeah. Uh, but I wonder, first of all, uh, I honestly don't really know how prevalent uh, faith-based programs uh, addressing, especially this particular uh, concern. Uh, how prevalent those are uh, that uh, based in other faiths other than Christian, and I wondered if uh, the study, the research that you've done, uh, is is applicable to uh, far-reaching right. faith-based initiatives. Well, this is a great question that you ask, 
And, and the, the short answer is that most of the programs um, that we study are Christian in their orientation. Um, and most of the studies that we do when we look at religion, the samples are based on Christians. This is just a reflection of the makeup of the American people, such that, let's say you do a national survey and you want to um, study Islam or you want to study Judaism. In a national survey, you're not going to have enough of an insight in those categories to do you know, meaningful statistical analysis, uh, which is unfortunate, but that's just the way the numbers fall. And, and so we don't have good comparisons between different religious groups. Um, that is something that's needed. I mean, I've been asked before, do you think a faith-based program that um, is Muslim in prisons would have anywhere near the same success that a Christian-based program has? Well, it's an empirical question, and we, we have not done those kinds of studies. Most all the programs that are in prisons are Christian, and so it just makes it very difficult to, to, to answer that question. My own sense is that when faith is practiced and it's authentic and meaningful in, in people's lives, it's probably going to have a positive effect. Uh, it, we reviewed 273 studies for this book, and uh, 90% of them find that you know more faith means to less crime and deviance. It's a it's a pretty overwhelming uh, look at the literature. You know, almost exclusively Christian, however. Um, so the answer is we don't know. Uh, to your question, it's 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 something worth pursuing, and I hope that we can in the future. It'd be great to compare these these different faith based approaches. Right. There are all kinds of gratifying success stories which uh, you outline in your book, and and again, you're not just telling us stories, but uh, backing it up with all kinds of statistics that make it pretty clear that uh, there seems to be something very positive going on in 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 many instances, and in particular, as you tell us in those situations in which faith-based uh, initiatives join forces or are done in collaboration or cooperation with, for instance, uh, government programs yeah. or other kinds of secular programs. Tell our listeners, for instance, about something uh, which has come to be known as the Boston Miracle and what it has to uh, say to the rest of the country. Sure. Well, Back in the early 1990s, youth violence in Boston was reaching uh, such a, a high level as to really frighten many residents in Boston and and to confound uh, public authorities. They didn't know what to do. 150 homicides in one year, and um, uh, this kind of culminated in a youth that was killed in you know a gang dispute, and then at the funeral of this uh, young man. Another a rival gang comes in and disturbs the, the funeral um, and starts shooting guns, uh, pulling out knives in a church at a funeral. And when that happened, um, the churches just said, we, we can't deal with this anymore. We have to take a stand. So a small group of African-American churches in Boston decided that they would call for a series of meetings with the law enforcement community uh, and the courts and the probation authorities, and they said, look, we're going to partner with you. We think something has to be done. And and the, and the church rallied in such a way, and the police department, they were frustrated as well. So they worked together, and they formed something called the Boston, uh, the Ten Point Coalition. 
This is just a handful of, of churches. And uh, what happened was they drove the youth violence rate down, and there was a, a period of about 18 months where there was not one single homicide in Boston. And so people from all across the country and indeed across the world came to Boston to see what had happened there. And it was this powerful collaboration. The churches couldn't have done it by themselves, but the law enforcement community and the mayor and everybody else was quick to say that without these these faith-based uh, uh, folks coming into the mix, they would not have seen this success. This unique collaboration between sacred and secular was really powerful. And and since you know there've been another a number of cities that have tried to to model the Boston miracle, and this is just one example in the book that I know will make some people uncomfortable because. A lot of people think that there shouldn't be these kinds of partnerships, and I think, in fact, we have to have these kinds of partnerships if we're ever going to have an impact that's scalable. Uh, In a moment, I want to ask you what it is you think that these faith-based initiatives bring to the problem that, for instance, their secular counterparts do not. Mm -hmm. But let's talk, uh, touch at least briefly on a couple of other specifics. One that I had not heard about with something called, I believe, Amaki? Amachi. Amachi. A-M-A-C-H-I. And uh, the name itself is uh, has kind of a, a, a beautiful story behind it. Yeah. Uh, tell our listeners about this. Well, when I was in Philadelphia uh, in, from 2000 to 2004, I was at the University of Pennsylvania, and I worked with a professor there, John DiIulio, and we headed up a, a center dedicated to the study of religion in urban society. And one of the things that we noticed is that if you look at at at-risk populations, it's hard to find a more at-risk group than children who have a parent incarcerated. Uh, These are kids that, um, if anyone has a chance of becoming uh, a prisoner themselves, the the odds are quite high that they might. But yet it's a forgotten group. And so uh, we worked with Big Brothers and Big Sisters of America. It was another kind of a faith-based uh, partnership with a secular mentoring organization, Big Brothers being one of the biggest mentoring organizations in the country, and public-private ventures in Philadelphia, and all the inner-city churches that wanted to participate in providing a mentor to a child that had a parent incarcerated. And it was an unusual experiment. Uh, we didn't know if it would work or not. But uh, Wilson Good, the former mayor of Philadelphia, headed up the program for us. And in about the space of one year, the matches made by Big Brothers and Big Sisters in Philadelphia essentially doubled. And what happened was Wilson Good would go into black churches and just say, would you be willing to mentor uh, a child of a prisoner? Um, And the churches responded. And, And then, before you know it, the President of the United States takes notice of this. And... um and an initiative is created out of Washington to support these kinds of mentoring programs. And over the last decade, 100,000 matches all across the country have been made with children of prisoners and a caring adult in their lives. So this is just another example of how faith-based people can make such a huge difference um, because these churches that they serve in are just completely volunteer-rich and in many ways are untapped. And, and and here's how we can achieve scale. When I keep going back to scale, because I think that's so important, Greg, 
not to have an isolated success story here or there, but how can you really make a difference nationally? Right. I would certainly be amiss if I didn't ask you about uh, a program that uh, has had uh, tremendous success uh, right in Milwaukee, Uh, this uh, program of VFZ, violence-free zones, Mm. and uh, uh, something which you say is uh, a simple model, but which involves very, very hard work. You know, um, a lot of schools, with the dropout rate, for for most of your listeners that they don't know, uh, we have a national uh, huge problem with just kids dropping out of high school. And, and it's about 33% that drop out nationally, but in our urban centers like inner Milwaukee, um, the, the rates are significantly higher than that. And um, so there's there's the dropout problem, and then there's the youth violence problem in many of these schools, and parents are concerned about it. Um, and so the Violence-Free Zone is an initiative from the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise, led by uh, Bob Woodson in Washington, D.C., a, a great figure himself. And what it is, they go into the schools, and they take youth advisors. They call them youth advisors, but these are really kind of mentors that roam the halls of the schools, and they are outside the schools as well as inside the schools, and they keep track of these kids, and they they work with them on a day-in and day-out basis. These are faith-motivated people that themselves were formerly in gangs. Um, And what happens is it drives violence down, and kids go to class, and they wind up graduating from school. So we've studied uh, uh, Milwaukee and Richmond, and we found the experience in Richmond to look very similar to the experience um, in Milwaukee. And I know that there was some resistance in Milwaukee initially to doing this, but because they'd had so many problems, they thought, we gotta, we'll got we'll try it, we'll try anything. And, uh, in fact, it's, it's, it's had some major success stories. And so I think this is another example of, you know, how faith-based programs can make a big difference. Uh, I, I want to make sure that I say that uh, your book uh – seeks to be very, very balanced and, and, and rooted in statistics. So, for instance, uh, when it comes to matters like uh, prisoners converting to religion, finding religion in prison, um, you are not uh, reluctant to share statistics that suggest that in many cases that is not enough right. to prevent a given prisoner from uh, falling into uh, the former life of crime which they'd known before, that it is a more complicated thing than that. But in the time that remains, I think we need to explore something that towards the end of the book you describe as a paradox. That is that so much of of your book uh, springs out of a concern that there is this sort of dismissive attitude uh, about religion and its place in, in certain arenas, at least a prejudice in the minds of some. And yet on the other hand, as you well point out, uh, America by and large is a very religious country, full of religious people. And uh, and we, for instance, elect very religious people all the time to, to, mm-hmm. to office. So there's it's kind of a complicated picture that's being painted there. Help us sort that out and uh, and where we are right now in terms of the place of religion uh, kind of in our collective lives as well as individual lives and where that leaves us when it comes to this uh, intriguing question of the place of religious life and religious faith when it comes to combating this particular social ill? Well, it is a fascinating paradox. We've known now from survey research that most Americans are are religious. They claim to be religious people. 
And uh, and I think this has really surprised so many people in Europe how Americans remain so so religious. And and yet there is still a significant number of people that believe religion's place is a completely private matter and not a public matter. And and, and this is where I think there's there's tension. So it's kind of like it's okay if you're religious, but don't don't let anybody else know. And so I think that's where... Um, some of the resistance to, to faith-based initiatives comes from, and some of these people themselves are religious that are opposed to faith-based programs because they think that um, it should not be in the public square. And um, so I think good people can just plain disagree on this point. I think the argument that I'm making is that unless we get over our hang-ups here, um, we're going to shortchange ourselves when we have such huge problems that need addressing and yet we have houses of worship, some 380,000 congregations across the country that are full of uh, people with great skills and great hearts that could help us. And so I think that, you know, my own my own take on this is that, you know, our faith doesn't have to be a private matter, and if it becomes public, great, so be it. Let's make it a part of the solution. Let's don't use our faith to beat people over the head but but we certainly need to figure out how we can partner one with another. And I think that this is, you know, I've seen people say, you know, the government is bad. We don't want to partner with the government. Uh, we want to do this on our own. And I've had, I've disagreed with people of faith on that issue as well, because I think the government brings accountability um, to so many of these initiatives where faith-based uh, organizations have not been willing to be evaluated, for example. And um, so it is a paradox. It's still there. Um, I think that we've seen some positive uh, change in recent years, but we still have a long ways to go to reconcile the two. Mm. And I guess that's uh, part of what makes this such an intriguing question and why there is uh, still work to do for those who believe in this kind of partnership and also for those who who want to study this and to see where all of this is headed. That's correct. And, you know, Greg, I know we're almost out of time. I was just going to say there is a website that people can go to um, uh, that's just come online. It's called moregodlesscrime.com. That's where they can find out about the book as well as other resources that will be up there for people to download. And again, the title of the book, More God, Less Crime, Why Faith Matters and How It Could Matter More. The book is published by Templeton Press. Byron Johnson, I thank you for joining me today and for writing this thought-provoking book. Thanks, Greg.